Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we walk into the dark and clouded unknown. I am your cursed host, Gary, here to entertain and inform you about the likes of cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries. I am joined by my wife and co-host, Goldie Ann. Hello, Goldie Ann. Hey, Gary. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing okay, except for it's really cold in Florida, so... (sighs) 45 in Florida is like freezing, so you'll have to deal with the hit. Go home, Florida. You're drunk. Very much. But I was wondering if maybe this weather is connected to today's podcast episode. Uh-oh. Well, because we are going to be talking about Inuits and uh, cold weather, so I thought it might tie in very well. Oh, there you go. So everything works for a reason. Well, you need to stop because I don't like the cold. Well, maybe it'll maybe it'll start warming up after the podcast is over. Oh, okay. With that in mind, Goldian, do you know how Eskimos get into their igloos? By walking? Close. They just walk right Inuit. Oh god. See, you had the walk part, right? You just got to Inuit. Yeah. I know I'm making you so happy and warm with laughter, right? Well, today's episode involves the use of drugs, mysterious deaths, and includes a murder that may be linked to a curse. These may be upsetting to some of our listeners. We are storytellers who have gathered information on some of our favorite mysteries to bring to you. We don't attempt to scare our listeners on purpose. Well, maybe just a little. Listener discretion is always advised. But first... A word from our sponsor. Welcome back. Goldie Ann, the 80s was a treasure trove of romantic comedies that included a fish-out-of-water theme. Yuck. I know, not quite horror movie quality for you, but... That's right. Rom-coms, those. rom-coms were everywhere during the 80s. A fish-out-of-water was a scenario in which the hero finds him in a world he has never experienced before. Whether it be Mr. Deeds' movie Adam Sandler, who was a small-town hero who became an heir to a fortune and discovered himself in a world of wealth overnight. Or maybe you can think of Georgia the Jungle. I watched that one. Okay, well, Brandon Fraser came from a life in the jungle to the modern city. The public adores these romantic comedies, so Hollywood keeps producing them, and they're always on the lookout for the next big hit. Do you know why I watched that one? Because it had Brandon Fraser. Thank you. Yeah. I, ding, 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 ding. It didn't take much for me to imagine that. <laughs> I'm so shocked. <laughs> well, what happens, Goldie Ann, when Hollywood discovers the perfect type of story, but then they make changes that may have angered a spirit of vengeance? Ooh. That's unreal. I, this is very interesting to me. I thought so as well. That's why I really wanted to do this episode. So join us today as we take a seat in the movie theater within the mist and watch the mystery of the Adduck curse unfold. Chapter 1, The Incomparable Atuck. Atuck. It's kind of like amuck, amuck, amuck. Based on Mordecai Richler's 1963 novel, The Incomparable Atuck, The story follows a young Inuit poet and native of Baffling Island who gets sent to Toronto. 
Inuit is just another name for an Eskimo. And this is a total fish out of water story. In 1977, director Norman Jewison commissioned writer Todd Carroll to adapt the novel for a feature film. The writer immediately set off to work, rewriting the story for the movie. He firmly believed that the story he worked out was everything that would make it a guaranteed Hollywood blockbuster for the summer. But in the movie version, he changed a talk to living in Alaska, but ends up in New York City. The screenplay would also change to see Atuk longing to explore the world outside of his small village. He would become smitten with the beautiful Michelle Ross, who visits his village on assignment. She is there to film several commercials for a real estate company showcasing the natural beauty of Atuk's homeland. Atuk falls in love with the girl and stows away on their plane and follows her and her crew back to New York City. There, he becomes embroiled in a scheme to replace his home wilderness with an urban metropolis. He arrives, saves a young man who turns out to be the son of a powerful but corrupt real estate mogul, and, of course, you have comedy hijinks that will ensue. The mogul is also his love interest's boss. After being exalted by Canada's urbanite citizenry, Atuk naively adopts the greed and pretensions of city life. That sounds kind of boring. Why? Because there's no ghost tearing his guts out? Basically. Anyways, Atuk is hired to appear in a series of commercials designed to convince the public to fund the Alaskan project. Then he discovers that the project will have a devastating effect on the beauty of his home. He wins over the investors with his honesty and pure heart. He also wins the affections of Michelle, thereby saving his village and getting the girl by the end of the movie. Carol completed his final draft of the script in 1979. Now they just needed their Atuk. So they needed someone who was very physical and very, you know, comedic. Chapter 2, John Belushi. John Belushi was the first actor to be attached to the film. Carol, the writer, had been a personal friend to the actor, and he was the actor he had in mind as he wrote out the script. So the movie was written with John Belushi in mind. Okay. Now, he is best known for being one of the seven original cast members of the NBC sketch comedy Saturday Night Live. After his breakout film role as Bluto in National Lampoon's Animal House of 1978, Belushi would appear in multiple films such as 1941, Neighbors, Continental Divide, and The Blues Brothers. I think I watched The Blues Brothers. Pretty sure. Uh, or at least you've probably seen multiple scenes from it. At probably, least. yeah. Now, Belushi was offered the lead role in 1982, and he showed a lot of interest in the script. He loved the concept of the simple woodsman finding love in the big city. Unfortunately, Belushi struggled with a heavy drug abuse that threatened his comedy career. More than once, he had been fired and rehired at Saturday Night Live due to his behavior. 
a few months after signing on with the film on March 5th, Belushi was tragically found dead in his hotel room at the Chateau Marmont by his trainer, Bill Wallace. He was only 33 years old. I didn't realize he was only 33. Very young. Wow. Just at the beginning of his career. That's so sad. It definitely is. As the police had been called in and his body was taken to the hospital for an autopsy, the cause of death was disputed. But it was officially ruled to be a drug-related accident, most likely caused by what is referred to as a speedball, a mixture of cocaine and morphine. Strangely, two months later, Catherine Evelyn Smith, a known drug dealer and groupie, admitted without any coercion in an interview that she had been with Belushi on the night of his death and had given him the fatal dosage. She arrested? Well, that's just it. She claimed that she had given the actor the high dose on accident, and although Belushi had taken similar high doses of drugs before, this night mysteriously would be the time that it would result in his fatality. Because of her interview, the case was reopened and she was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Her case was delayed by lawyers' negotiations for four years while she remained free. (laughs) Then she was convicted and incarcerated. A plea bargain reduced the charge to involuntary manslaughter and she served 15 months in prison. Wow. Must be nice to have money. Well, she really didn't have money. It was more of a... Everything in the headlines. Uh-huh. And I think they were trying to keep as much of this downplayed as possible for John Belushi and his family. But it's just weird that Belushi had taken these amount of drugs before and had been fine. This night he dies. She was kind of in the clear until she opened up her mouth during a magazine interview that prompted them to arrest her. Right. So why was she involved in it so much. Chapter 3, Sam Kennison. In 1986, after losing their lead, the script for a tuck should have ended completely, but it went back on the market and this time Sam Kennison got involved. He would play the lead role of a tuck and he was eager to accept the lead role. Kinnison was a former Pentecostal preacher that had performed stand-up routines that were characterized by intense, sudden tirades punctuated with his screaming, similar to charismatic preachers. It's kind of easy to remember some of his uh, outbursts and the screamings that he would do in different movies or on stage. Yeah, but I'm remembering the profanity And the raunchiness. And you're telling me he was a preacher? Very much. Oh, my God. That was kind of the play on it is that he flipped the 180. And, yeah, that's that's why a lot of his uh, act involved religion and women. God, I had no clue. Yeah, he became a regular fixture at the comedy store where he met and eventually befriended other comedians such as Robin Williams and Jim Carrey. His comedy was a crass observation geared towards women and dating. And his popularity grew quickly, earning him appearances on multiple late-night shows. His star was definitely on the rise. He just needed the right movie role to put him in the spotlight. Now, 
1988, the production began and managed eight days of filming before Kinison halted the production. Very little of the movie had been completed. In fact, they had only really filmed one scene for the movie. Kinison became disillusioned with the script and began commissioning another writer to rework the script while also trying to gain creative control. The studio got involved and filed a lawsuit. So Kinison's britches got, you know, he got a little bit big for his britches on this. The problems involving Kinison's tyrannical behavior, combined with the actor's alcoholism and drug problems, led a halt on production in 1992. Now, negotiations did begin again, and Kinison cleaned up his personal life and reassumed the role of a tuck. Unfortunately, it was during these negotiations that Kinison died. He was only 38 years old. Also, very young and on the very beginning of his career. Yeah. Now, what had happened was that on Friday, April 10th, 1992, he was driving his Trans Am when his vehicle was struck head-on in California by a pickup truck, which was driven by a 17-year-old who had been drinking alcohol. So the man who has an alcohol problem but gets himself cleaned up gets killed by a drunk driver. Damn. It seems the pickup truck drifted across the center lane of the road and was trying to pass another vehicle and then moved into Kinison's lane. Kinison and his wife were on their way to Laughlin, Nevada to perform at a sold-out show at the Riverside Casino. So everything was going really well at this point in Kinison's life. After the crash, Kinison appeared fine with only minor visual facial wounds. His best friend Carl Lebove, who had been driving in a car behind him at the time of the accident. His brother was also there as well, and they didn't see any visible injuries. Then, Kinison began to talk to himself, repeating, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. It was then that it appeared as if he was talking to someone who wasn't there. After a pause, he asked this unseen entity, But why? There was another pause, followed by Kinison's last words, Okay. Okay. The actor lost consciousness and could not be resuscitated. Lebove later said that whatever voice was talking to him gave him the right answer, and he just relaxed with it. And this is true? This is actually documented by the people who were there. Oh, my God. Kinison died at the scene of the accident from internal injuries. His wife who was in the same car with him, survived with only a mild concussion. The driver of the other vehicle also survived with very minor injuries. Well, the only death was Sam Kinison himself. Drunk drivers normally do survive. That's the problem. Well, although Kinison's death may not be seen as a mysterious, but just a risk of driving on the highway, those final minutes and his last words, especially so close to his connection to a tuck, does add an air of mystery to it. Some members of Hollywood began to whisper of the Atuck curse. Chapter 4, John Candy The production team refused to give up on the movie. 
They really believed the script was something special, trying to avoid the fears of a curse. And so, in 1994, Hollywood approached comedy icon John Candy. He had heard of the script, although he wasn't familiar with the supposed curse. He loved the idea of a tuck and requested a copy of the script. Almost immediately after reading it, he agreed to become the latest Atuck. Now, John Candy had risen to fame in the 1970s as a member of Second City and its SCTV series. He was an established movie star in comedy films including Stripes, Splash, Summer Rental, Spaceballs, Uncle Buck, Cool Runnings, and The Great Outdoors. Actually, I've seen most of them because I love John Candy. I do, too. Uh, Uncle Buck is one of my all-time favorite movies of all time. But one of his most renowned performances was as Del Griffith, the talkative shower curtain ring salesman in John Hughes' comedy, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Saw that one, too. Well, yeah, I kind of watch that every Thanksgiving. (laughs) Now, before filming of a tuck could begin, John Candy was finishing work on his latest film in Mexico. In 1994, while on vacation from filming Wagons East in Mexico, Candy was found dead in his hotel room. Although no autopsy was performed, the cause of death was presumed to be a heart attack. Poor baby. Yeah. In addition to his obesity, John Candy tended to binge eat in response to his professional struggles and weighed in excess of 300 pounds at some points in his life. He also had a number of risk factors for a heart attack, including family history, smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, and heavy alcohol use. The strange part is, is that at this time in his career, John Candy was concerned about his weight. He had worked to lose 100 pounds over the summer, and he frequently dieted and exercised with trainers because of his family history. Unfortunately, even with these changes to his personal health, the curse of a tuck still found him. At some point in the night of March 4th, he died of a heart attack in his sleep, and he was only 43 years old. Now I have something to add on to the case of John Candy, because he had reportedly asked his close friend Michael O'Donohue to read the script and join the cast. He had supposedly been involved with the script as far back as the original Todd Carroll work on the script. The story says that he was the one who delivered the script to Belushi in 1981, and he was the one who presented another copy of the script to John Candy. Michael O'Donohue may not be as popular as the other actors we talked about, but he was known for his dark and destructive style of comedy and humor. And he was a contributor to National Lampoon's magazine. And he was the first head writer of Saturday Night Live. He was also the first performer to utter a line on that show. So he has been involved with a lot of these comedy actors at the very beginning of their careers. Now, in November of that same year, O'Donohue also passed away. He had been complaining of a history of chronic migraines and died from a cerebral hemorrhage at 54 years old, only eight months after John Candy's passing. Damn. 
the Atuk curse was beginning to firmly take grasp on the death toll for any actors associated with the film and the role of Atuk. Chapter 5, Chris Farley. You'd think they would learn by now. Well, it would take a long time before Hollywood decide to try again on the project. I mean, almost five years they waited before the script resurfaced in 1997. A tuck was offered to Chris Farley. Farley was aware that his idol, John Belushi, was once offered the part, and so he was intrigued and expressed an interest to playing the role of a tuck. Farley was such a lifelong fan of Belushi and modeled most of his career after the actor. This included his appearing on Saturday Night Live. It would also have been a way for him to honor his hero. Farley was known for his loud, energetic comedy style and was a member of Chicago's Second City Theater and a cast member for Saturday Night Live for five seasons, from 1990 to 1995. It was then that he was being picked up for a film career, appearing in hit films such as Airheads, Tommy Boy, Black Sheep, Beverly Hills Ninja, and Almost Heroes. Yeah, I've seen none of those. Well, they're not horror movies. <laughs> Just keeping a tab here. Gotcha. I appreciate that. Keep it real. Farley's obesity and drug use had gotten out of control as well, but his friends and families had convinced him to go to Chicago and receive treatment at the John Hancock Center. It would have seemed that the young comedy actor was cleaning up his life in order to start on his way to fame. However, much like his idol, Farley also died young. He died at the same age as John Belushi at the age of 33. Wow. This was only a few months after reading the script and agreeing to take on the role of a tuck. On December 18th, Farley was found dead by his younger brother in his apartment. An autopsy revealed that Farley had died of an overdose of a same combination of cocaine and morphine a speedball, just like John Belushi. Oh, that's insane. Their careers were the same, they were on the same path, and they died the same way. Wow. So, deja vu to the extreme. Farley also introduced his friend Phil Hartman to the script of A Tuck and convinced he would be the perfect role for the evil real estate mogul Alexander McEwen. Hartman was widely known for his tenure on Saturday Night Live from 1986 to 1994, and he had been in a number of movies to include a supporting role in Houseguest, Jingle All the Way, and Small Soldiers, and So I Married an Axe Murderer. Hartman was known for his dry portrayals in comedies, so he kind of played the straight man in a lot of different movies. In 1986, Hartman joined the Saturday Night Live as a cast member and stayed for eight seasons. He was nicknamed Glue for his ability to hold the show together and keep other cast members working. So he was kind of everyone's friend and everyone's supporter. He even won a Primetime Emmy Award for his work on Saturday Night Live in 1989. So he was a rising star as well. Less than five months after the tragic death of Chris Farley, 
Hartman's wife murdered him in cold blood. Jesus. On May 27, 1998, his wife, Bryn Hartman, got into a heated argument with Phil after he threatened to leave her if she started using drugs again. Sounds like she already started. On this night especially, because at 3 a.m., Bryn entered the bedroom and shot her husband as he slept, twice in the head and once in his side. She then drove to a friend's house and confessed to the murder, who did not believe her. The two of them drove back to the home where the friend saw the body of Phil Hartman and called the police. As the police arrived and escorted the children out of the home, Bryn locked herself up in the bedroom. And according to reports, she shouted, I told you I did it. I killed him. And I don't know why I did it. Shortly after, she committed suicide by shooting herself. Wow. This is strange because Farley, who modeled his career after John Belushi, would take on the role that was meant for his hero and then fall victim to the same death. And even stranger is that Hartman's wife was motivated to murder him even though afterwards she couldn't remember why she did it. Did a spirit grant Farley's wish to live and die like his role model? And did it play a part in convincing Phil Hartman's wife to take up murder? Chapter 6, A Spirit of Vengeance It should be noted that within the Inuit shamanism, there exists a creature called the Tupalak. The Tupalak is an avenging monster that's constructed by practitioners of witchcraft or shamanism by using various objects such as animal parts, bone, skin, hair, sinew, anything, and even parts taken from the corpses of children. Ew. They put this together and they summon a dark spirit. The problem is that this creature is given life by ritualistic chance. It was then placed into the sea to seek and destroy specific enemies. All it really requires is a sufficient hatred and a desire for revenge to set the creature loose. Because Tupelok's summoning materials were made in secret, in isolated places, and from materials that are perishable, none of these have ever been preserved. When an early European visitor to Greenland was fascinated by the native legends, they wanted to see what a Tupelok looked like. So the Inuit carved a representative out of them out of sperm whale teeth. So I have a picture here of what a Tupelok looks like. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Two-headed so, demon. A two-headed demon, large fangs, wide mouth, very ferocious looking. And I'll post a picture of this on our uh, show notes. Was an Inuit shaman angered at the treatment of his people within the movie script? Or was this creature created out of anger due to Hollywood's whitewashing of cultures within their movies? A tuck is supposed to be an Inuit, an Alaskan Eskimo, not a white actor from Hollywood. It is possible that some invisible spirit roams just outside of Hollywood and is charged with keeping the movie from being made no matter who dies. Rude. With the death toll now at six, 
Believers in the script's curse were convinced that the film must never be made. Some of them even made entreaties to have the script seized and secured. The original manuscript seems to have been hidden away in one of the main offices. A tuck sits unmade and untouched for years. Some believe in the curse. Some do not. Wow, so those that do not are just going to get more people killed. Yeah, if this movie picks another actor, I would be very frightened for that actor at this point. <laughs> I think most people would. But, I mean, this is back in the 1995-98, that the last time they tried to make the movie. And here we are in the 2020s, so I think they've kind of given up on it. That's good. But you never know. Someone somewhere might find the script and then say, hey, hey, let's do this. This sounds like a good movie. Mm-hmm. Now, there is an overlooked proverb that states that the pen is mightier than the sword. In the case of a tuck curse, this proves to be very true and very deadly. Has an Inuit vengeance spirit taken issue with white men being cast as an Inuit? Hollywood does have a dark history of destroying lives. Drugs, alcohol, fast lives have all had their effect on these actors regardless of a curse. Any one of these men could have and might have died regardless of their connection to the role of a tuck. However, it is a dark bit of timing that pleases each of these men who are on the turn of positivity in their personal lives and career that it is snatched away so quickly after becoming a part of a movie that never was. So whether you associate the eerie similarity of John Belushi and Farley's lives and death, Candy's sudden heart attack just as he completes one project for before starting a tuck, or the unseen conversation that Kinnison spoke with. That one gets me. Ugh, that's weird. Even the brain hemorrhage of O'Donohue takes on a dark turn, as does the murder of Phil Hartman and his wife's confusion. So much tragedy is linked to a simple story of an Inuit poet who visits the big city for the first time in search of his love. I just thought of something. Okay. What if we die now? Good job. Thanks. No, the book is actually still on sale on Amazon. You can buy it for like $10. The book in the story is not the curse. Okay. The movie script is the curse. All right. So unless you see a movie script come up and we get assigned to act in the movie, if any Hollywood agents are listening, then we would be a danger. Okay. So we should be safe for now. Mm. And with that in mind, I think it's time to lock up the movie script and come out from within the mist. We are on social media and would love to hear your stories and opinions about the curse of a tuck. Do you think there can be a curse linked to a movie script preventing it from ever being filmed? You can reach us on Facebook within the Miss Podcast. We are also on Instagram and Twitter. Plus, we have an email at withinthemistpodcast at gmail.com for any of you who would like to share. We hope you enjoyed our story of the Atuck curse and we'll come again for another episode. Until then, Watch your movies a little more closely and remain constantly curious. Goodbye, everybody. See you later.